going to be sharing with you today on a subject that I want you to have your thinking caps on and give me your best attention. Somebody say, ye are gods. Look at your neighbor and say, you are a god. (laughs) You trust me enough to say it, some didn't, but it's up to you now whether or not you can follow along. Jesus called us gods. Do I have your attention? Yeah, now you need to pay attention to why we're uh, needing our thinking caps on today. The idea of rappers and rock stars and idolaters calling themselves gods is actually an imitation of the scripture that calls God's people gods. You are called gods in the scriptures. Now, what is a god according to the Bible? That's the question. What is a God? And what is God's, or God's plural, in comparison to the God of the Bible? Obviously, we are monotheists that believe in one God. We are not polytheists. But what does Jesus mean when he calls us gods? Go with me with this in mind that we are going to build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus will build it through us. Go with me to John chapter 10, verse 34. I do not tend to pick sermon titles just based on controversy, but I want to pick them based on what we need to get out of the service, what the message needs to be. And so that's why I pick this clearly in our sermon series on the church, because I want everyone to understand how clear Jesus is towards what he gives us as roles in the church. In first service, we're going through a sermon series called The Church. The passage you were first at, Matthew 16, 13 through 20, has been our go-to. That is the series text. But I need now to begin to explain how you are gods, but you are not God, the Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit. How you are gods, and yet you are not a false god that is to be worshipped. How you are gods, and yet you have authority and power and dominion, but you are not Satan, the God of this world, the false God. Can I hear an amen? Look at John chapter 10 there with me. Uh, Excuse me, John chapter 10, yes, verse 34. Jesus answered them and said, is it not written in your law, I have said, you are what? God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father has sent as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. Now, hold your place there and then put up our passage in Matthew 16, 13. Remember, Peter was asked, who do you say that I am? All the disciples were asked. And Peter answered, you are Christ, the son of the living God. How many remember when I taught you that when Peter was saying Jesus is the son of the living God, that is not in the same context that we are sons and daughters of God? How many remember I've gone over that? Okay, amen. The reason why that's important is going back to John 10, 34. Notice what Jesus says, that he has a unique role as God's son. And the problem was is that they didn't believe that. They didn't believe that he was equal with the Father, that he had the same authority of the Father, that he was the creator like the Father. In a separate tab, uh, put up one of our favorite verses in this church, John 1.1. 1, 1. Remember John chapter 10 comes after chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? 
God. And so John is teaching us Jesus is God. John chapter 1, verse 1, brothers, in the back, please. As you are learning what John is teaching us about Jesus, Jesus gets into that argument in John chapter 10 with the Jews. And now go to the text there of John 10. They are saying that he is blaspheming. Does everybody understand that? Amen. He is being accused of blasphemy because he's calling himself God's son. If he was just merely saying he is a son or daughter of God, now you wouldn't say he was a daughter, but if you were saying he was a son of God, as, as you could say you're a daughter of God, or I could say I'm a son of God, then why would they accuse him of blasphemy? The prophets are called sons of God. Are you guys tracking with me? The reason why he is now being accused of blasphemy is because he is making himself out to be a unique Son of God. Follow through the verse, 20, uh, th- verse 37. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. Now, once again, we all have God as our Father in the sense of our creation, our Creator, and we are His creation. But He is not saying that merely God is His Creator, He is saying He can do what the Father does. Verse 38, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works you uh, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in what? The Father. Do you see his unique relationship there? Okay, now we have to understand why this is important. Because in the middle of him defending himself by saying that he is equal with the Father, he gives the people an argument that most Christians do not understand. And the argument that he makes is, you shouldn't be surprised that the term God is applied to me because I'm equal with the Father. The term God has actually been applied to your ancestors. Do you see the argument? Let's take our time and go through it. Only about four of you have it. The argument Jesus is making is, I can call myself the Son of God. I can call myself that because I do what the Father does. Does everybody see that? That is the argument not only of Jesus in the moment, that is the point of the Gospel of John, starting with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to the Word as a nickname for Jesus, as otherwise known as He's the Word. That's the name of Jesus before His pre-incarnate state. So John is taking the argument of Jesus that he's giving in John 10 and making an entire gospel of it. And so John tells us what Jesus said to them as a defense. His first defense is, you shouldn't be upset that I am referring to myself as God because you have been referred to as God's. Then he goes further on to say, I am not merely a God, as we would put in the lowercase g, like how your ancestors were gods. I am the unique son of God. No one is like me. Remember when Jesus speaks of himself in, the, uh, in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten. That word begotten means unique son of God. Does everybody get that? 
So he says here, the first argument is you shouldn't have a problem with me using the term God towards a person because that has been used of your ancestors. And then number two, I can use it in its fullest sense, not just in the sense that the father meant it in his speaking towards the judges as what we'll learn those people are in the past, but he is God in the fullest sense as the father is God in the fullest sense. Can I hear an amen? You have to understand this. Now, why is this important when it comes to the church? Because the church has authority. The church is the place where God rules and reigns among the gods, among his rulers. Go to Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And please take your time to understand what I'm saying. I'm not a polytheist. But now you need to understand how this term gods is used. Psalms, brothers in the back, please. Please keep up. Psalms 82, verse 6. Notice what it says when David is speaking, inspired by the Holy Spirit. You, Yahweh, reign in the council of the gods. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. Now go to verse 1, please. There is the quotation that Jesus is saying, but notice what he says in verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. This is the Yahweh of eternity. He renders his judgments among the who? Among the gods. Now, if you want to see a book that goes into more detail into this, some things I agree with, some I don't, you can read Michael Heiser on The Unseen Realm, one of our best Old Testament scholars, and he believes that the gods there are being referred to as angels, and that's not what I believe. And if it does, it's secondarily. The first reason that Jesus uses this is the reason that I believe we need to understand the role and authority of the church. In other words, the way Jesus interprets this is the way I'm going to interpret it. So going back to John chapter 10, verse 34, the tab should be up there, brothers. Thank you. He says, it is written in your law, I have said you are God's. Now, looking at the Psalm 82, verse 6, that is the quote, right? That's the quote in the verse 6. It says, you are gods, right? But it says, you are sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere what? You will die like what? Mortals, like mere humans. You will fall like every other what? Ruler. So the context is Jesus speaking to Jews, and Jews have been called gods when they acted on behalf of the Most High, and they were rulers. Does everybody get that? And the Bible says, now looking at the verse 1 of chapter uh, of, of 82 there, what it says is that he, God, presides among the gods. So when the humans are doing the work of God, being known as gods, there is God among the gods. Now, if you look there in the, uh, the, the translation, you see lowercase g separating from the uppercase g, and then you see gods in quotations. Those are all there by your translators, but it's not there in the original Hebrew. So, brother, tap on the, uh, the, the icon there so that everybody can just see what it looks like. It is simply the word Elohim. The word Elohim can mean God singular or it can mean God's plural. And so here you see God, Elohim, notice this, and we capitalize it to let you know we're talking about the almighty God, but notice it in this word, Elohim presides among the other what? 
Elohim. Now, how do we know that this one is plural and this one is singular? That's a whole other discussion on grammar with the Hebrew. There is nothing hidden here. There's nothing uh, conspiracy here. Conspiratorial is the word I was looking for. That's not happening. There's the grammar rules, and it's being followed, okay? But I want you to understand that it's the exact same word. Does everybody see it? Does everybody see the exact same word here? Okay, I need your help. Now turn with me in another tab, please, to Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. Because when Jesus said in John chapter 10 that it is written in your law, I have said ye are gods, the law is not Psalms. And we went there as a reference of the quote. But Psalm, if you know, David in Psalm 82, he has a reference to another time. In other words, David is not himself saying at this moment all of this has happened. David in Psalm 82 is referencing times in the past, and he's saying what God has done. Can I hear an amen for that? In other words, most of the time when David is talking, he's either talking about his own private, personal situations, looking to the future in prophecy, or he's looking to the past. How many understand that? Okay, when David is talking, he's generally talking either about himself in the present, or he's looking towards a future event as a prophecy, or he's reminding the people of what God has done in the past. One more time, can I hear an amen for that? So just put up there again uh, the tab, please, Psalm 82, verse 1. When David is saying God presides in the great assembly, he renders judgment among the gods. That obviously can apply to what he's doing right there. But now go on to verse 6, please. In verse 6, notice right here he says, I said, I said you are gods. Well, when did he actually say that? He didn't say that at the moment of the time of the psalm being written. God had said that at a previous time. Can I hear an amen to that? And then he tells them the curse that will be upon them. Well, now you have to go to Exodus, please. Uh, go to Exodus 21, 5 through 6. Now, right here is actually a beautiful passage that is making our point, but within the point we're making, there's something here to take notice of. Uh, during the time of Black Lives Matter and the justice movement uh, that did injustice to try to make right wrongs, and you can't make two, uh, two wrongs do not make a right, uh, they accused the church, the church that had stood by the abolition of slavery during the Civil War, the church that had housed and promoted the civil rights movement of Reverend Martin Luther King. They tried to accuse Christians of not being for freedom. Can I hear that stupid? That's stupid. Christians have always stood for freedom, the true Christians, I should say, okay? And one of the reasons why the slave masters of the South had to delete things out of the Bible and give a slave Bible that was different than our Bible, and that you can see this in the museums, the reason why they had to do it was because of scriptures like this. When you look at the Old Testament, slavery was around, but it wasn't the kind that we would see in the South during the time of the antebellum slavery. What it was like was those in debt paying off their debts and those captured in war. We did not believe in killing everybody. We did not believe in just letting everybody do what they wanted. So there was a punishment towards enemies. And then if you became in debt towards those that you had borrowed from, you couldn't just claim bankruptcy and go back to being in debt on your credit card. You had to go to the store. You had to go to Macy's and work for them now. Can I hear an amen? So these are biblical principles, and we're not ashamed of them. 
And the principle of servitude in the Old Testament was so amazing and beyond the cultures of that day, which, by the way, there is no people group free from slavery that we know of, especially any major people group. All people groups, whether in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, and so forth, have all participated in something like this. And yet Christianity in these ancient times, or I should say Judaism, uh, in these ancient times had such an amazing protocol, such a high standard of living for the servants, that this passage actually exists. And many of you don't understand it, and that's why I'm teaching it to you, but it's not even the message. There's one word that I'm going here for, just one word, but I want you to see the context because it's that amazing and what we're doing within the culture. Can I hear an amen? You want to know what it is in summary? That is, after you have paid off your debt, or you have been a slave of war, and now you can go free, you can actually remain as a servant or slave in that man or woman's house. Why would they even put that there as an option for you if the slavery was like the kind you saw in the color purple? Does Kuta Kinte want to stay with Bubba? Of course he doesn't. But yet in our scriptures, there had to be a law. What do you do now with the one who is happy in the home being a servant or slave at this master's table or in this master's uh, business? And let me just say this as one more thing. Anything you say of slavery in the Bible that you think is right or wrong because of the term slave and master is actually the same exact terms that Jesus uses towards us. He is our master and we are his slaves slash servants. It's the same word. Can I hear an amen? Master and slave relationship still goes on today in the same kind of way. It's just us with Jesus. Can I hear an amen? The Bible says he's our master and we are his slaves. And I wish I had more time to discuss that. But once again, if your thought of a slave is an Egyptian slave, is an Aztec slave, is a Chinese empire slave, if it is a Roman slave, then you miss the point. But what we are in this context is exactly the kind of slave that loves our master so much that we don't want to be free, we want to stay there and be with them. And then one side issue here is this also gives permission for piercings and earrings. You want to read the passage now? I said, do you want to read it now? Amen. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, in other words, I still want to be employed here, then his master must take him before the judges. Everybody say judges. He shall take him to the door of the post and pierce his ear with an awe. Then he will be his servant for life. So if you wanted to stay with your master, and this would be your way of doing it, you would get your ears pierced, and this would be a sign that you now have willingly decided to stay so that no one could change their mind and say, I didn't want to stay. They made me stay. No, I willingly came before the judges and said, I want to be here. Now hit the Greek and Hebrew button there, my brother. This is in Hebrew. Guess what word is there for judges? Guess what word is there? Don't show them yet. Don't show them yet, but guess what word is there? Elohim, you guys are pretty smart. Scroll up a little bit for me, please. There you go. Does everybody see the word? Scroll up a little bit more so they can see it clearly. Thank you. Everybody see that? Wow. So that must mean what Jesus was talking about. Put it up there, please, in John chapter 10. And John, when he says, is it not written in your law? 
I have said ye are gods. Psalm quotes it, but where are they actually called gods in the law? The first five books of the Bible, they're in Exodus. Now going back there to the Exodus passage, who called the judges God? Who called the judges? Who is talking here? You must bring them before the gods. You must bring them before the Elohim. Who is the one talking to Moses? God, this is the law. This is the law that God has given. Now, I want everybody to think about this. I know we're running out of tabs, but just in this tab now, put Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Why is this important? Because you and I, brothers and sisters, need to understand our role upon the earth. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah teaches us the prophecy in which the Lord is going to give us about who Jesus is. And the first thing that we are learning is that Jesus has a government. In 9.6 it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And what is the first attribute? You could take it off the Hebrew there for me, my brother. Thank you. It, what is the first attribute that we learn? And the government will be on his what? His shoulders. Okay, now everybody think about this. When Jesus established Israel, did he have a government? Yes or no? He did. Let's go back to Exodus. Go back to the Exodus. Leave that there now. We have to make a new tab or do something there because we're running out of space, I know. But leave Isaiah up there. But we need to get another tab and put Exodus because you guys have just lost the point. You literally lost the point, and I need you to have your thinking caps on today, okay? I need everybody to pay attention. This is not the story of Noah and the flood, okay? Exodus 21, verse 5. When God established Israel, did he have a government? Yes. Inside of that government was judges. Does everybody see them here? Then his master must take him before the what? Pay attention. Pay attention. If God established a government in the Old Testament, Jesus must be the king of that government because the Messiah comes in the lineage of David. And David is the king not of Egypt. David is not the king of Assyria. David is a king of what nation? Israel. Now, because I didn't get a good response, I'm going to have to show you about five scriptures about Jesus being a king and Israel having a government. Are you going to be patient with me? Thank you. Now go to Psalm chapter 2, please. Because if you don't understand this, I can't go on. There's nothing to go on to, in other words. Notice in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 and onward, there are nations and there is the world. But notice what is happening here. God is going to set up a king. Verse 2, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is one of the most clearest passages where the Messiah is mentioned. Please click on the Hebrew so they can see the word for anointed. The word anointed there is Mashiach. It is the word for Christ, Messiah. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrews. Everybody get that? Amen. Now taking it off the Hebrew so we can make it easy to read. The Bible says he's going to put his anointed in place. Look at now verse 6. Keep going please. I have installed my what? 
my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Okay, does everybody see that? Need to take you to a few different places as well. Now, go to Revelation chapter 1, because this has to be obvious to us, otherwise we miss it. For some of you who are not ready for it, that's okay, we'll take our time. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Notice what Jesus says here. He's talking to John. He's there giving him revelation. And he says to him who loves and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and fathers. Everybody see that? All right. Now scroll down to verse 17. I turned, or excuse me, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, and though dead, he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever, and behold, I have the keys of death and what? Hades. Now keep scrolling down for me, please. Look at how Jesus speaks about himself to those in the church and how he directs himself. Keep on going, please. Keep going. Notice what he says right here. Uh, no, just keep going. We, we could go there, but I'm trying to pick the ones that I will say it the best. Now, notice this right here. Go, go up a, a little bit there. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Somebody say the churches. Thank you. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give that person a white stone and a new name written on it, known only to them and to one who receives it. You know what this is? This is your citizenship into the kingdom where he is king, and you are going to have literally an ID to get in, and it's going to be on a stone. When you come into this country, you get a social security number, right? Birth certificate, those who were born here, then you get your social security, then you get your ID. In the kingdom of God, we're going to have IDs. Now scroll down just a little bit more, please. Go all the way down to chapter 3. Now look at what he says here. He says, to the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The one who has the seven spirits of God, put in Isaiah 61, is the king of God who rules with the Holy Spirit as his force, his energy, and his power on the earth, and we become the citizens of this kingdom. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, same word Mashiach, he has made me Messiah to preach the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to do all of these things. Now look at verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn in Zion. Does everybody see what's going on right here? God is appointing his anointed one. The anointed one is the appointed one. What does he do? He sets up a kingdom. What else does he do? He puts people into that kingdom. And then what does he do? He gives them his spirit, which is manifested in seven different ways. And then through that group of people, he rules and reigns with them. And then now I just want to show you one more that I don't have memorized, which is he is the root and the offspring of David. And that is also found in Revelation because he claims his kingship through David and he never loses it. As long as he has his flesh, he is the root and offspring. Revelation 22:16. And so this is important to understand why he keeps his flesh. 
He keeps his flesh because he is fulfilling the prophecies given to David about a king always being on the throne, and that started in Psalm 2, or at least was described there in Psalm chapter 2 because we believe that David is the psalm. Uh, David is the author speaking of himself becoming a king, the appointed one of God, and then through him come the lines of the king, and Jesus is the great king because he's the anointed one, and then Jesus is seen not only as the root, but he's also the fruit or offspring of David. I, Jesus, sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the what? Offspring of who? David, the bright and morning star. And of course, maybe just let me just show this to you real quick as well. King of Kings. How many want to see that in the book of Revelation as well? Just where he declares who he is. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. Now, how many understand after this point that there's government in the Bible, starting with the Old Testament? Okay. On his robe, talking about Jesus, and on his thigh, this name is written. So we talk about Jesus having a tattoo on his thigh, by the way, there. On his robe. So he's wearing a robe, and it's written this, the same thing that's also tattooed or written on his thigh. He has the name written, and let's highlight and say it together on the count of three. One, two, three. King of kings and Lord of lords. Okay. Do you also know that he's called God of gods? Let me just show that to you as well in the Bible. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's also the God of gods. This means that every authority, every person, he rules over them. God of gods is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Notice this. The same place that says ye are gods, the same place that calls the judges gods, it says for the Lord your God is God of what? So there must be other gods, right? And he's the Lord of what? Lord, and there must be other lords. Do you know who those gods and lords are? Us. It's not that he's just simply saying, I am God over Pan, or I am God over Osiris, or I am God over the Pharaoh. No, according to the Bible, remember, just put it back up there, 82 verse 1, he is the God among the gods he appoints. He is the Lord among the lords he appoints. When you think of the term Lord, we often think of landlord and a lord of the manor. And these terms that are associated with a master. But remember, in the scriptures, he appoints new gods, new masters, new judges, new rulers. Listen to what I'm asking you, brothers. Psalm 82, verse 1 and 6, please. When we look to that psalm, remember it says, he reigns and rules among the what? The gods. Going up to verse 1. What does that mean? Oh, that he just rules among Osiris? He, he rules among Jupiter? No, no, no. Those are false gods. Those gods don't exist. Does everybody understand that? Those gods don't exist. Those gods are mere idols. In uh, Isaiah, as I've been listening to, Isaiah mocks them as he's ha- hearing the word of the Lord. He mocks them. He says, you go, you go to the forest, you cut down a tree, you then make one part of the tree an idol, and then the other part you burn in the fire to cook your food. He says, you're foolish. Is that what he's rendering judgment among? And put it in the Hebrew so everybody can see it again, please. Notice what he says. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the what? Gods. Among them. Is he rendering judgment among Thor and Hercules and false gods that don't even exist? No. No. He's rendering it among his people. 
So going back to my original question now. Are you guys ready? We came off the uh, repetition there. Hopefully the review was for you. I'm going to ask again. Does Jesus establish a government in the Old Testament? He does. And those judges, those leaders, those authorities are called what according to the Scripture? God's. Have you learned something? That's important that you understand that. Because now the question is, as we went to Isaiah 9-6, the government's upon Jesus' shoulders. And if Israel today is no longer having the judgment of God and they're no longer the gods and the rulers, then where is God's government today? Where is it? It's the church. Wow. So then here among us must be the gods and the lords that he's ruling over. Does everybody see that? You are the stewards of this earth. You are the ones that God has called to be in charge of the world. I'm going to start showing you things that are going to blow your mind, but I want to tell you where it all starts. It starts in the church. People who do not believe in what the church is here to do miss the entire big picture of God. Going back to our notes, please, I wanted to get there uh, eventually. I think we're ready to understand this now. When Peter gets the identification of who Jesus is, what does Jesus now say back to him? Oh, great answer. I love you. Here's a blessing. Here's some glitter. Get bedazzled and enjoy a, a little bit of prayer. The very next thing he says to him is governmental language. He changes his name. Remember, when Jesus meets all of us on Judgment Day, we get new names. Here, Peter gets a new name. He'll still get a new name in that citizenship, but what's the first thing that happened? Name is changed. His citizenship is now changed. And then what is the next thing that he is told? I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Think about that, y'all. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that in the Our Father that we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom, thy Sunday school class, thy concert, thy charitable works. No, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. Where? Just in spiritual places where ghosts live? Just where make-believe characters are at? No, that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. What did Jesus just say to Peter? This is after that. What did Peter just receive? Keys to the kingdom. Keys were placed inside of a disciple's hands. Not literal, obviously, but the authority of Jesus Christ. To have keys. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are now with you. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You want to talk about Star Wars. You want to talk about the the things of fantasy, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, whatever wizard movie you want to think of or any superhero movie you want to think of. This is where it comes from. This is the reality. Because according to the Bible... From the time of Adam and Eve and a serpent who was a trespasser, there's been battles between heaven and earth. Have you heard about those battles between heaven and earth? 
Have you read the book of Job and how Satan comes with the angels before God to make a deal? Have you heard about the war that was going on in Babylon while Daniel was praying and the angels had to come in war so that another angel could slip through the battle and come and bring him a word? Have you heard about the battle that will soon take place when the stars will begin to come from the earth, uh, from the sky to the earth because there will be a cataclysmic battle of the ages? You will watch the war of the heavenlies break out. But in the meantime, right now, in what we call the shadow land, in the valley of the shadow of death where we see the enemy ruling as a false god. He's called the god of this age, is he not? It's not Satan called the god of this age. We see that there's a battle raging. And oftentimes we think, as that picture has uh, on social media, Jesus and the devil arm wrestling. That's not Jesus and the devil arm wrestling. Jesus, when he came to earth, stomped on the, by, uh, stomped on the head of the devil and crushed him and got all the authority from him. Satan had taken it from us, though. How? Just go back to that Revelation passage, please. Revelation 1.6. If Jesus, uh, uh, Revelation 1.17, if Jesus is boasting that now he has the keys, where did he get those keys from? He got them from the devil. He said, look, I was dead and now I'm alive forever and I hold the keys of death and hell, the keys of death and Hades. Where did he get those from? The devil. But where did the devil get the keys from? From us. Go to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus, what is his last temptation to Jesus? Bow down before me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of this earth. Notice how he could do that with him. Go up, please. Notice how he could do that. Keep going, please, a little bit. Notice how he could do that. A little bit there. There we go. Look at it. A little bit more, please. Verse 5. Notice how he could do this. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And what does he say? I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone. Can I get some water, please, and amen? Thank you. I was preaching yesterday at the abortion clinic. i got to have some extra oomph today. Thank you, brothers. Notice this. Does Jesus say back to him, you're a liar? Thank you, brother. Highlight this for them. Verse 6. I will give you all their authority and splendor because it has been what? Given to me. Highlight the next part, please. And I can give it to anyone I want. Where did he get that authority? From us in the Garden of Eden because we were called to be the gods of the earth. We were called to be the judges. We were called, since we're going through it, just now go to Genesis chapter 1. Go to Genesis chapter 1 when he makes us and gives us our authority. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and what? And subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
What's the very next word? Rule. What's the very next word, saints? Rule. There you go. There are the keys. Satan got kicked out of heaven because he wanted God's authority. And God wouldn't give it. Of course not. But who was stupid enough to give him the authority? We were. That's why, and I want everyone to pay attention, please. That's why every problem of evil you see started right there. Anytime somebody wants to talk to me about children dying of cancer, sex trafficking and rape and murder and holocausts and genocide and infanticide, there it was. We were to have perfect peace among each other, and we were to rule over this land. It was not for us to eat of a tree that opened our minds to good and evil without the provision of our God. When we opened our minds to the good and the evil of this universe unfiltered by God, you have what you see today. And you will not live in a blessed garden with that knowledge. Does that mean the child with cancer has actually violated God's law and is uh, punished because of sin. No, and I want everyone to listen to me. That's not what Christians believe. That's what Hindus believe. That's what sweet yoga practicing Hindus believe. Karma, according to them, is played out among the sick and the impoverished every day. And it's not my word. I've been to India three times. I've met the real ones. I've been to the ashrams. It is the belief system. You are born crippled. You have been raped. Bad has happened to you. It's because of what you did in another life. That is not the way the Bible looks at it. The Bible is very clear that once this dominion and power was taken from the rightful owners of humanity and given to the devil, that through the story of Job, we are now taught that bad things will also happen to good people. We always talk about Job getting everything back at the end, but what about those kids who died? Hello, what about all those innocent animals, right? Yeah. Because evil happens indiscriminately now in this world. Because we have opened the floodgates of evil. What does Jesus do when he comes and he announces the kingdom of God? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 3, please. What is the message of Jesus on the earth? Is that the kingdom of God is now coming. And what are some of the first things that he does? He begins to heal the sick. He begins to preach to the poor. He begins to go to the downtrodden. And even the disciples who had been influenced by the Eastern thinking, saying, who sinned that made this man crippled, himself or his parents? And what does God say? Ne uh, Jesus says, neither. It was so the displays of God's glory could be seen. You want to know the nutshell of why evil still exists? It's so that God's glory can be seen. John the Baptist started preaching it in Matthew. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's the last and final prophet of the Old Testament. And now here comes Jesus. Scroll all the way down to Jesus, please. Uh, in this passage, John, uh, Matthew chapter 3. Keep scrolling down. 
because Jesus is going to come to him to be baptized. You went too far. Uh, go on up. Uh, there we go. It's chapter 4. Thank you. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. What? What did Jesus begin to preach? Repent for the Sunday school of heaven is at hand? No, because the Sunday school wouldn't change the world. The Sunday school is not a government. What does Jesus begin to uh, preach? What does he say? What does Jesus say? I want everybody to see it. Jesus says, for the of heaven has what? Come near. There you go. You go back to the notes, please. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you guys back there. Notice this. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? It's the church. It's the church. I'm going to show you some things in just a few moments that are going to tell you why I'm so fired up. But we don't get this in our culture. I have never come to you with authority based on my education. Have I ever asked you to call me Dr. Joe here? No. I don't come to you with authority based on my ordination. Have I ever corrected anybody here and said, call me pastor, apostle, elder, bishop? Have I ever? Never, ever, ever, right? But brothers and sisters, when I preach this to you, I have the authority of the gods of old. God is presiding among us. And it's not just when I preach. It's when you preach. It's when you go out and build your business. You're doing it as a God in this earth, as a judge unto this earth, restoring the dominion that was taken by a lying devil and got back when Jesus stomped on his head and took back the keys. You are gods among men, as the Bible says. You are not just a mere human creature anymore. You are now a creature sharing in the divine nature. Go to 2 Peter, please, chapter 2, uh, chapter 1. It doesn't mean we are God. It doesn't mean there's multiple gods. We're still monotheists. It's just we need to understand the term when it says you are gods. We need to understand this term here when it says you partake in the divine nature. It means we have God with us, and if God is in us, we can do what God does. And that's how you will know us, you filthy, wicked world. We will be gods among you. We will be your kings, your lords, and our God is the God of us. Amen? We aren't Mormons going to another planet to make spirit children, to be worshipped as a God. We're not Hindus who all believe we're equal to God in some pantheistic way, as well as the tree and the fork. And one waiter in, in, in India said, well, I believe that, you know, don't think it's such a big deal. I think I'm God. I think the fork is God. I think you're God. We're all God. And that's not what we're saying. His divine power, Peter speaking. Remember, same one giving the keys right there. He says in his second epistle, His divine power has given us everything we need for a God-like life. What do you think godly means? Godly means you're like Isaiah, a prophet. God means you're like a donkey. You know, Jack, you know what I'm saying? That's King James language there. Come on. No, you're not like a donkey. You're not like an, uh, an angel. You're like God. You're like God. Hallelujah. See, Satan wanted to corrupt what God was giving us and say, well, if you eat of it, you'll become God's. See, he wanted us to bypass the authority God was giving us to do it his way. And how did it work for you, Satan, as you took the authority we had and did it your way? It made you a wicked, evil devil that will have you chained for eternity, the Bible says. Satan himself will not love hell. 
I want everybody to get this. Sometimes people think the highway to hell. We're all going to get there and have fun, they say. No, Satan won't hate hell. I won't like hell. He's going to hate in every sinner with him. But no, we were meant to be God-like. We were meant to be like God in his power, like God in his knowledge. We were meant to live a life like God. So when you look at these rappers, you know, and they call themselves Jehovah. Which rapper calls himself Jehovah? Jay-Z and then Kanye West and some of these others and these rock stars. They want to be God. No, 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 no. Notice how the passage goes here. His divine power, he's the source of it. It's not us. We're not equal to him. He's above us as an ant. Uh, he's above us as, as, as we are to an ant times a million. But notice what it does. He gives us his divine power so that we have everything we need so that we can live a God-like life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us great and precious promises that we learn throughout the scripture so that through them you may participate in the what? In the what kind of nature? I want to slap this so hard I might break the mic right now. So I'm just going to gently. What kind of nature? Divine nature. Oh, I was born, born naughty by nature. Anybody remember that rap group? I was born naughty by nature. Well, the Bible says to be born again into the divine nature. I'm not merely human anymore. You're not merely human. You are a human infused with the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. What does it mean to participate in the divine nature other than to become like God without noticing this, without the substance of God being diminished in any way, nor our humanity trying to elevate us to his equality? I want to say that again. Because you need to be careful with these words, lest we be accused of being Mormons and, and other false beliefs. We are not saying that when God gives us his divine nature, that he now lowers what it means to be God and raises us up so that what he kind of depletes out of his God nature, we get into our human nature and now we become equals. Does everybody get that as wrong? We are not saying God takes anything out of his nature and diminishes it. When we participate in the divine nature, the divine nature of God remains exactly the same it's always been. He is the great I am that I am, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He is the God of all gods and the creator of everything. It never diminishes him. Are you listening? At the same time, watch this, whenever we participate in the divine nature, it never changes our humanity to the point where it now challenges, challenges his divinity. In other words, it does not elevate us beyond human status to make us equal with God. Go to Isaiah chapter 45 quickly. I just see some blank stares, but I need you to understand it, so I'll give it to you in the Word. The Word says it better than me. Amen? But you are not merely human. Not according to the Bible. You have something unique and distinct about you where you are literally called a new human race. How many know you're a part of a new human race? 
Go to Isaiah 46, rather. Well, well, no, start in Isaiah 45. Start in Isaiah 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45, 21, declare what is to be presented. Let them take counsel together. Whoever foretold this long ago, who declared it from the distant past, was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God apart from me? Does everybody see that? So in what way is there no God apart from the very one who said he's the God of gods? The very one who said he's the God of gods has said, now there is no God apart from me. So what kind of God is he saying? There is no one like me, the creator, the first and the last. There can't be another one before the first. Are you listening to me? And there can't be another one after the last. So in the sense of what we mean by monotheism, there is only one being like this. No one becomes this being. No one shares equally in this being's nature. Never has, never will be. Does everybody get that? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no God apart from me. Isaiah 46 then. This is where God is very clear about who he is. Isaiah 46, verse 4. Even to your old age and your gray hairs. Hallelujah. How many got some gray hairs today and are a little bit older? God is going to be with you. I am he. I'm he who sustain you. I have made you and will carry you. I will sustain you and rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me to that we may be compared? Does everybody get it? Nobody's like our God. Now 46 verse 8. Remember this. Keep in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. (laughs) How many know God knows how to get sassy sometimes? Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How many understand that to be true? One more time in case you're Polish like me and need it repeated multiple times. Go to Isaiah 47. The next chapter, so we went to 45, we went to 46. I'm just getting rid of all blank stares. When I say I share in the divine nature, I participate in a God-like life. I am called a God and a Lord, but I am not God the Lord. Amen? I'm helping you understand that. No confusion here. That's why we say to our, our, our friends who are Mormons or Hindus, we say, let us help you untangle the knots you have made here. We know what you're trying to say, but there's a better way to go about it. And then if they want to remain in their ignorance, that's up to them. But there's something inside of them that wants to reach for more than mere humanity, and, there, and, and there's a, a desire of that inside of us that God put, not the devil. Remember, it was the devil who said you could get it another way, and that was the wrong way. It wasn't the wrong way to want to be like God. It wasn't wrong to want to have dominion, was it? It wasn't wrong to want to be like him. No, it was just the, the, that way. That, that way that was the shortcut, in other words. So look at Isaiah 47 quickly, verse 8. Now, then listen, you lover of pleasure. (laughs) Another rebuke. Now, then listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am, and there is none beside me. This is what he's saying to the... To the leaders who think there's nobody like them, I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. And if you go up to the, uh, the verses prior to that, he says, you think you're uh, in control, but I'm going to cast you down. Look at verse 47, verse 1. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. So it is very clear 
There is nobody like God, and anybody who tries to pretend to be like God will end up like Babylon did. And if you remember the king of Babylon when he said he was a God and he did these things all on his own, God made him be like an animal, go live out in the wilderness and have have his fingernails grow out like claws and eat dirt and grass. Does anybody remember that? So that's what he's saying to them. There's nobody like me. You can't be like me. I'll cast you down, and every one of your fears will come upon you. Now, please, let's go back to 2 Peter. We participate in the divine nature. You're not merely a human. What is merely a human? Born of their mom and dad, dead in their spiritual soul, separated from God, and they only have their own intellect and their ability to sustain themselves. And what happens to even the smartest and strongest among us? We all die and fall apart, don't we? But what does the Bible say? that there can be someone that's upgraded from merely a human to a God-like human. Do you see the difference? A godly human. A one that is different than the others. And that kind of human is the one that Jesus makes. I want to show you in the book of Corinthians where he becomes the second Adam. How many believe Jesus is the second Adam? Amen. And this is the new humanity. And then we'll get to the church in just a moment. But turn with me quickly, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter four, uh, 15, verse 45. The first Adam brought the curse upon us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. You guys are doing great back there. And notice this. Let's go up to verse, yeah, right there, verse 45 is good. So it is written, the first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. See, remember when Adam and Eve were just, you know, Adam was just a sandman and God breathed into him, he became a living soul, right? But now the the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. What does that mean? The very one who gave Adam the ability to become a living soul is what the last Adam is. Adam was a living soul, and now Jesus is the one who makes living souls. I just want to explain that verse to you. It says the first man was someone who became a living soul. Does everybody get that? The first Adam became a living being, became a soul. Can I get an amen? Just to help you understand the scripture. Adam was a guy that was sitting there in sand, made like a little sand man, and it was someone who gave him life, and then he became a living soul. Notice he became. He wasn't always a living soul. Like Hinduism will say, we all came from the light. We go back to the light. No, no, no. There was a time you never existed. There was a time your soul never existed. And then God made a soul begin to exist that was not him. God made a soul that was not him. We didn't get a piece of God. He didn't separate himself into little pieces. No, he made another living soul. He's a soul. He has mind, will, and intellect, but he made a soul. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Just like you can make this, Steve Jobs made this, but that is not Steve Jobs. This is what Christians have always believed. But what is the last Adam? The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. So the last Adam, Jesus, is the one who makes spirits alive. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and then after, the spiritual. So did, a, did the soul come first of Adam, or did the, the, the sand in the body come first? The body came first, and then came his soul. Now it's going to say, just like Adam came first, uh, his body came first, then his soul, so the natural Adam came first, then the spiritual. The first Adam was dust of the earth. The second man is of where? Heaven. So Adam came from earth. Where did Jesus come from? Heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. How many know that's humanity? 
Now watch. And is the heavenly man, so are also those who are of what? Heaven. And just as we born the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the what? Come on, somebody. There's the kingdom of God. Right now, you get a taste of it. Just like I'm tasting this mint right now. Get a little taste of the divine. You ever wake up, get thoughts in your heart that didn't come from you, and you go about your day and you see some things happen that you never thought, heard, or imagined? That's the divine flowing through you. You ever go through troubles in life and something raise up on the inside of you that didn't come natural? And you make it through somehow, some way? That's the divine coming through you. You ever find yourself ministering to others in their times of need? And God gives you words or you have inspiration to speak and to share and to do things for them? And it changes their life radically. And they say, how did you know? How did you know this changed me? There's the divine. Then one day, brothers and sisters, we will take on that same image. Do you all get that? And the righteous will shine brighter than the sun. How many have heard that before? That's one of my most favorite scriptures because the Bible promises us as we go from glory to glory, the righteous begin to shine greater and greater. And so the way I look at it, Proverbs 4.18, please, is that once you start dancing with the divine, you never stop. Once you start going from glory to glory, you never stop. The Bible says the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter to the full light of day. You keep getting brighter and brighter in the glory of God. The things that God has planned for us, the Bible says no eye has seen nor ear has heard. Now somebody say make it plain. Amen. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Why is this so important that you understand your role and status? It's great to encourage you. How many are encouraged right now? But how many now know there's something to do about it? And that is you need to make judgments as the gods of old did. As those before in Israel made judgments, you need to make judgments now. And the problem is, is that most Christians think they're not called to judge. Because they've heard some scripture taken out of context, they have given up their role as a judge. And so they're letting the world that God has called them to have dominion over, they're letting that world go crazy because they don't want to make judgments. But notice this. The judgments that the Christian makes, he does so in the church. He can make them outside of the world, but not in the same way. The judgments that you and I need to become practiced in and become experts in is the judgments of righteous living in heaven and hell. So in other words, if we cannot hear in this beginning seed of the kingdom of God, encourage each other to live for Jesus and to do it without offense, we will lose the authority that God wants to give us to the world. Are you guys listening to me? In other words, how can you ever go out there and tell somebody they're doing something wrong if someone in here can't tell you when you're doing something wrong? How can you ever go out there and say, hey, y'all stop killing each other on the streets if you don't know how to listen to somebody in here? If you don't know how to receive from authority here, how can you go out there and give the authority? 
See, just go to Matthew 28, 18 and onwards. Remember, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go into all the world and make the disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do what? To obey how many things? Everything I've commanded you. But where does the teaching of the commands begin? In the church. How can you go out there and command somebody to obey Jesus if you don't receive a command in here? Isn't that probably the number one reason that people don't want to go to church is because of hypocrisy? Now, going to 1 Corinthians, and, and Lord help me, I'm probably going to have to do a, another sermon on this. I tried to get to this last week. I, I had a lot to share today. How many got something out of today? Amen. But I really want you to come back next week by God's grace. But I want you to see this. The Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, was not doing good at this. It's reported that there's sexual immorality around, uh, among you and this kind, the, the pagans don't even tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man had been doing this? Do you see what he's calling on them to do? He's saying, make your judgments. Do the right thing, but they're not. So he begins to rebuke them. Follow it all the way down to the end, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world, who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you'd have to leave the world and go be Amish and live on a farm. So he's saying, I can't have you excommunicate the whole world. Otherwise, you're going to simply be out there on a farm somewhere. But I am writing you, verse 11, that you do not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, uh, slanderer drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. But see, that would take care of the problems of hypocrisy in the church real quick. Are you not living for God? You call yourself a Christian? We're not hanging out anymore. Well, who are you to judge me? I'm a God on earth according to Jesus. That's what I am. What are you? Well, Jesus said nobody's perfect. He said, no, we are God's. We are kings and queens appointed to leadership. I participate in the divine nature. I am not to tolerate sin in the church. I'm not to tolerate it in my house. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Look at verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those in the church? Remember, the judges were called gods in the book of Exodus. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This doesn't mean we hate them, we don't love them. It just means we teach them. This is the kingdom of God. Quickly go on to chapter 6 now. He continues with that same thought. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know the Lord's people will what the world? We will judge the world. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. No, we're going to judge you in the church. And then those in the world, we're coming for you next. Do you all get that? And you are to judge the world. Look at how he uses this. And if you are to judge the world, why are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? What do you do with that scripture? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Brothers and sisters, I just want to be very honest with you as Daryl comes to the keys. I think that we are so enamored by the idolatry and false gods of the world 
that we don't even know that God said that we were to be his gods and rulers, Elohim judges to the earth. You are so enamored, some of you, come on, watching on Instagram, ladies, a woman that's trying to be your idol instead of you understanding you're called to be her judge. You're called to be her leader. You're called to be her contact point with God. You're literally supposed to show her what God is like. And let's get, come on, let's take a few moments here, gentlemen. Some of you are so enamored with men in tights hitting a ball with a bat that you make them your false gods. Instead of understanding that every ball player in Chicago should be sitting in this chair and coming to your Bible study because you are their Elohim. Hello, somebody. We don't know our authority. And then we pay all these millions of dollars to go watch people in CGI screens to go pretend like they're going to make a difference in this world. Paul said, that's not how it works. He said, you are the judges. Why do you not see yourself as that? Paul said, don't you know you're going to judge the world one day? When we talk about the kingdom of God coming upon this earth, we're not talking about make-believe. All the disciples got this so much that that was the number one thing they talked about. Do you know what was talked about more than heaven? The kingdom of heaven coming to earth. Do you want to know what was talked about more than spiritual gifts and miracles? Was ruling and reigning with Christ. Do you want to know more of what was more prophesied, the first coming or the second coming? The first coming of Jesus as king to be our redemption has about 300 prophecies. They say when you look at the Hebrew Bible, there's a thousand talking about him to come and rule and reign with his people. And yet all we're thinking, I just got to go to church and pray and get rid of my sin and try to live this out. You're trying to figure out how to live out of your porn habit, get free from a porn habit, and God is saying, I want you to judge the entire porn industry. I want to hand you the entire keys to the internet. And yet we're wasting it. It's almost like we're back in the Garden of Eden again. And the devil just comes and offers us a little bit of something and we'll go ahead and take it instead of having our keys of the kingdom and dominion. And you might say back to yourself, well, what are you doing, pastor? What are you, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing everything I know to have dominion on this earth. First and foremost in my heart, having dominion over sin. Sin is not in a Lord over my heart. I am the master of my body. And if I ever should sin, I am quick to repent and get the treason out of my heart. Number two, Jesus is Lord of my marriage. I'm having a death do us part kind of marriage. The kingdom of heaven is in our relationship of loving one another as Christ loves the church. Number three, the kingdom of God is in my children. All my children, as soon as they learn how to read and write, learn how to read and write the Bible, learn how to pray, learn how to keep the rules of that kingdom there on 1186 Shawford Way Drive, and they learn how to obey Jesus Christ as the King of Kings. And then I come into this job, which yeah, makes it easy for me 
to do the things of God because I happen to be a pastor, but I will not be a backslidden pastor. I will not be a lazy pastor. I will not be a compromising pastor. By God's grace, I'll be a kind of pastor that raises up a church of kings unto God, judges who serve the Lord and teach his commands. And then, last but not least, brother, sister, I, along with you, take that authority out into the world. And I give them the commands of God. Now, can I make the judgment over them like I make in the church, over who I marry, bury, and baptize, and all of those things? No, there's no judgment in that way. Can I excommunicate a worldly member because they don't keep the things of God? No. Do I believe we should impose our commands into their laws? No. We've talked about all of those things before. But what do I do? I come as an ambassador of a king and a kingdom. And I say, be reconciled to God. Go to Psalm 2 quickly in closing, please. I say to them what I was commanded to say when my king was appointed. I say to the kings of this world, all the way down to the beggars and the pulpers, be reconciled to my God. He is coming. He is coming. Scroll all the way down to the end. This is my plead with them. Therefore, verse 10, be warned, you kings, Therefore, you mayors, therefore, you school leaders, therefore, you business owners. I said to the gentleman getting on a lunch break yesterday or a Friday downtown, and I said, you can be a CEO, but you need a G-O-D. And the guy laughed and turned around and said, oh, that's a good one. You got me with that. And I know it's kind of funny, right? It makes them think. But I'm telling them the truth. You better be ready, you CEOs. You better be wise, you homeowners, you college graduates, you smarty pants, all the people that have done great things in this world. You better be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry. And your way, come on, brothers and sisters, will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, don't leave it just to me. I beg and plead with you, don't leave it just to Peter. Know your place in the kingdom of God. Know what he has called you to be. He has come so that we may participate in his nature. He has come so that we may be more than just merely humans, so that we may be participators in the divine nature. Jesus Christ has come to make sons and daughters, kings and queens, rulers and governors and leaders. He has come to bring this world back under the dominion of God, and he's using us to do it, to go to the nations. Is it any wonder they hate us so much? Notice this. Without lifting one sword here, without being violent or causing any of you to take up arms, I have given you the greatest words of a revolutionary that will literally overthrow governments. Why do you think China is afraid of us right now? Because that is their message to the emperor of China. Why do you think in North Korea they put us in concentration camps? Because that's the message to that dictator. Why do you think they won't allow us in Mecca and persecute us all across the Islamic lands? Because that is the message to everyone following a demonic prophet named Muhammad. But we don't have to lift up a weapon. 
We don't have to force you today. You can leave this church and never come back. But what is our message to you? You better serve God. Get wise. Get smart. Because he's coming. And the Bible says, and I don't have time to get into it in the book of Revelation, that all those we've preached to will bow before us as they bow before God. Not to us. Not to us. Notice I didn't say to us. They will bow before us and give honor to everything we've done for them. In other words, one of the last things the sinful world will see is us shining brighter than the sun on behalf of our God and then being cast into the lake of fire. They will come before our feet. Please get it in Revelation, Jerry. They will come before our feet and worship our God. They will kneel. Listen to this one more time. They will kneel before our feet and worship God in front of us. I'm not going to have you do it now because it may seem to be demeaning, and God is not present in that way right now, if you understand. But just get that illustration. And you know, you know the one that I have? I didn't, uh, you know what? Just pause right here with that scripture. Go to my folder on the page uh, on my desktop and double-click the King of England bowing before the, uh, the Bishop of, of, uh, of the Anglican Church. Remember I talked about this last week? There's a reason why kings in Christian nations bow before their bishops and kiss their rings because of scriptures like this. Now, did they do it the wrong way? Absolutely, because when did we teach last week that the kings are appointed over the earth when Jesus comes back? Amen? So we don't have any right to ask people to bow before us now as their king. Remember, even Paul kind of mocks this. He says to the Corinthians, you have gone on and become kings without us. I guess life is good for you. I'm sitting here being persecuted. I'm now the scum of the earth. How many remember hearing something like that from Paul? Well, that's because one day we will be kings ruling and reigning, but you do it wrong, you suffer because you become power hungry. You become greedy. So we should not unite our government with the church. I'm saying that is a bad idea. Until Jesus comes back and keeps us as kings all in check, it's bad to do that. But there's a reason why they still do that. Did you find it? The king of England bowed, and I took a screenshot of it. But go ahead and put it uh, up in the scripture of Revelation. Let's all stand to our feet, please. I thought you would get a kick out of that. How many have ever seen a king, though, or a picture of that bow before a, uh, a bishop? You know, sometimes you look at that and you're like, the bishop is more wicked than the king. Band and altar workers, would you come, please? Brother, if you go to Joe's stuff, I can see it right here on mine. Oh, it is loaded. You did find it, though. Okay, great. But get the scripture for him, please, Jerry. They will come before your feet and worship God. They will bow before your feet and worship God. Oh, thank you. Revelation 3.9. I guess our computer's running slow in the back. Revelation chapter 3, verse 9 says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews and they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. How many are ready for that day? How many know that sinners will not only bow before their maker, they'll bow before the Christian church? How do we treat them now, the Bible says, as servants? We love them. The Bible says, do not lord your authority over them. But you warn them, do you not? But how many know you need to go out into the world and show them that authority? Amen. Don't be shy with it, but don't become a conquistador, in other words. How many know the balance here? 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful service. We ask that you will raise up your kings, your leadership here, your Elohim. Father, we pray that you'll start by making us new creations born again if we're not yet already. Right now, if you're here today and you have not yet been born again, repent of your sins. Ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. For those of us who are already born again, will you raise up your hands and say, Lord, raise me up to be a godly leader. Help me to be God-like in all that I do. I want to live like you, Jesus. Help me to be a pillar and a foundation in this church, to be a leader who lives by the commands of God. Come on, in your own words. In your own words, let them know right now, Jesus, I want to be used by you, God, to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And with your hands raised, brothers or sisters, if you're facing any uh, uh, attacks of the enemy, remember the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail. Rebuke them now in Jesus' name. If you're facing attacks on your job, facing attacks on you, uh, in your family or in your community, ask the Lord right now to set you free, to give you victory. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You have been given divine power to participate in the divine nature. You are like the second Adam. Hallelujah. Father, I pray you bless us in this house. Raise us up to be your leaders. You are the God of gods and the Lord of lords, and your people say amen and amen. If you believe it, can I hear you say amen one more time, saints? God bless you. Thank you for your patience today. You are dismissed. We're going to go out in this side door. The rest of you can hang out and pray. Thank you. For